So Exodus 3, that's where we're going to be this morning, Exodus chapter 3. So you are, as you're turning there uh, in your Bibles or um, you have them on your phones or whatever it might be, I want to welcome you to Genesis Community Church. Uh, My name is Hans, I get to serve as one of the pastors here and it is just a joy. We just started in Exodus last week. Exodus is going to be a little different than the sermon series we've been through, so if you've been with us lately... You know, we're taking, we've been taking a, a teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and so when you're dealing with something like Exodus, we're not going to treat it in the same fashion because we're, we're telling longer stories, and we're dealing with more, it, it, the, the paragraphs themselves build the ideas and they move us to something that is true about the Lord. So we're going to go a little differently, sometimes different, a little longer, even as I make my slides, I'm like, man, that's a lot of slides, but they're mainly just, just text. So uh, that's all that it is. Uh, And we'll go through it just like that. Now, if you remember from last week, you remember that we we spanned 40 years in two chapters. And between chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're about to make the same span. And before we get just to that, I just want to probably think about your own life. And your own life, wherever you are right now, is probably marked by a few large moments and a million forgettable ones. A few large moments and a million forgettable ones. So if I say to you, like we're just talking, I go, what are the three most painful memories you have? I was talking to my buddy who's a good question asker, and I was giving him questions. I'd ask people, and he's like, your questions are brutal, Uh, because I'm like, what's hurt you the most in life? And uh, I was like, you're right. Um, wh- <laughs> my bad. You can also talk about the three most significant moments in your life, or the five most significant. But really, I doubt many of us, if we just took three minutes, could get beyond five to ten memorable, kind of transformative moments in our life. And then we have all of these seemingly insignificant ones. So for those in the room who are Christians, do you remember the moment you placed faith in Jesus? Some really do, clearly. They were adults and they go, yeah, I remember very clearly that I knew I had sin, I knew I needed a Savior. Others don't really remember a moment uh, because they, they grew up in the faith, they had believing parents perhaps, and, and so they don't go, they'll say, I don't remember a specific moment. I know it was there, but I'm not sure when I actually passed from death to life because it was just where I was. So somebody might remember that, or uh, if you're married, hopefully you remember your wedding day, at least the wedding date, that would be a good one too. But at the same, by the same token, um, do you remember what you ate for lunch last Tuesday? Or if you're weird and you do remember that? What about the lunch two weeks prior to that? Now, if you eat the same lunch every day, it doesn't count. You don't count. Every day, I eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and three chips. I'm like, well, then forget it. You're not part of this. Whole point is, right, we do so much living that we forget. And then we have a couple of moments that seem to just be these, these kind of uh, iceberg or uh, glacial moments for us that just kind of become significant for the next 10 years, next 20 years, next 50 years. 
But let me ask you this. Was God more present in moment one, your salvation, in regards to his character, his being, or at lunch last Tuesday? Was he more real? Was he more God, you know, on your wedding day than when you woke up yesterday? No. Right? He's unchanging. He's always the same. And so we're never really sure when we'll be interrupted. We're never really sure when we'll be caught off guard. We're never really sure when something happens in our lives and it sends us in an entirely different direction. I'm never sure of that. And yet, as people of faith, when we're interrupted, we need to be able to respond, don't we? We need to be able to... to, to we don't, we, we don't want to be the ones who are like, well, hold on, let me go get my whole affairs in order. If the Lord says something, if we, if we realize something true in the scriptures, we want to be able to respond to it in faith. We don't want to have to wait three weeks, three months, three years. So when the Lord makes something clear, we want to be able to respond to it in obedience. And so we, we live there going, a lot of my day is forgettable, but at the same time, God is very real and I could be interrupted at any time. Both of those things are true. But knowing who God is lets us know how to respond to him. Knowing his character, knowing his faithfulness, that he is unchanging, right? Knowing God's character, even in unexpected moments, allows for us to respond in obedience. And we're going to be reminded of this today in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is, is funny when you preach it because it's a... It's a unique time in the history of salvation. Like, I'm not going to ask you to go find your burning bush moment or anything like that. Like, you're not going to have that, right? That seemed to have happened one time, and we're done with it. Like, so there was that time where God specifically did this thing, and so we can get really cute with how we try to teach these pastors and be like, and so where's your burning bush, right? Lord, I need my burning bush. Give it to me. Like, that's not what we're doing here because God was, right, these scriptures are telling us what happened, but they're not saying this is how it happens, that when God commissions you, you get a burning bush, Right? When God commissions us as believers, we get Jesus telling us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We get, we get the spoken word of the risen Lord. So that's sufficient. We don't need something else. We get Jesus telling us. But let's go to the timeline to remember where we are in Exodus 3. I'm going to use some of the book of Acts and just, just referencing it and some of Exodus 3 and Exodus 7 to get us there. Remember, Moses is born and he grows up in Pharaoh's house. We get 40 years of time between him growing up and him killing the Egyptian. Remember that? He's mad and so he kills the Egyptian. At 40, and you go to Acts 7, 23 and 24, and in Stephen's speech in the book of Acts, he goes, and then at 40 years old, he did this thing. He killed the Egyptian. And he flees to Midian, and it's there he meets his wife. 40 years later, so right, 40 plus 40 is 80, good job. Uh, so 40 plus 40 days. So now he's 80, and we know that from Acts 7.30 and also Exodus 7.7. 7. He says, now Moses was 80 years old when he went to go to Pharaoh. And this is all happening together. So we've had 40 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. You are born, think about Moses' story. He's born, sustained by God, and all we really know about him is that at 40 he killed a man. Like That's what we know at this point in time. And then we know 40 years later, 
you're still working for your father-in-law. He's in the family business. So he flees to Midian, he, he marries his wife, and then he's working for his father-in-law. And what does he do? He's a shepherd. <laughs> he's tending to the flocks. Forty years of being a shepherd. Forty years of living in Midian, away from his people, Israel. Forty years of waking up and going out and tending to flocks and coming in. Forty years. He's 80, but his life isn't over. But his life isn't over. And you have to remember this. Because the prime of your life is not your highest wage-earning years. The prime of your life isn't necessarily your retirement. It isn't when you were 20 and you had no kids and you could do whatever you wanted. It wasn't when you were in college. It wasn't when you were a child and you had very few concerns. That's not the time you go back to. The Lord might commission a specific way and direction at 80. It might happen at 90. It might happen at 95, 100. We don't know. And so that's why what's important for us is to tune our hearts to what the Lord says so that at any time and at any age and at any stage of life, we go, okay. Right? That none of us are set. None of us are set. It doesn't matter what your career is right now and how many more years you expect to be in this career. You might not have that job tomorrow. You might be on a plane ready to go preach Jesus somewhere that you've never been. Because that's what our Lord does. And so we need to remember that though we might feel like we are ready to go in a direction of stability for the rest of our lives, you might be 80, and the Lord goes, I'm not done here. I'm not done here. So that's where we're going to be. That's why I just love it, because we get to read this encounter that Moses has while he's just going about his day. We get to hear how the Lord speaks to him and how he reveals himself to Moses. And then we, we start to get introduced to Moses' concerns. We're actually going to spend next week on his bigger concerns. Because his first concerns are how will this be received? And then his second list of concerns are kind of like how will I be received? Right, so he starts with these broader concerns. And then in, as he finishes this encounter... He gets more like, well, I don't speak well, and what about this, and could you please send somebody else? And so more of that will come next week, but we get some of his major concerns right now. First six verses, Exodus 3, 1 through 6, as we get that encounter. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also known as Sinai. We'll get to that in a second. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Don't tell me how that happened, because it was the Lord. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and look at this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he, that would be the Lord, said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he, the Lord, said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses is working for his father-in-law west of Midian. So he's far east of Egypt. And we have 
at Mount Horeb, and they call it the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. Well, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, where the law are given, are actually the same place, which is why it's called the mountain of God. So they're actually the same place. So he's there, and it's also Mount Sinai. So for example, you look at Deuteronomy 5.2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Right? Speaking of the covenant God made, well, where did God make the covenant? We'd say Sinai. But at Horeb, 1 Kings 8, 9, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So it's interesting that the Lord is revealing himself to Moses at the place that he's going to get back to later. He's actually going to leave this place, depart, go to Egypt, and then as he brings his people out of the land, where are they going to go? But they're going to go back to this same spot. And so this is a significant place. That's why it's called the mountain of God. It's the place where God is interacting with his people. It's the place that he revealed himself to Moses. It's the place that he is going to form a covenant with his people. This is a significant place for the nation And Moses doesn't even yet understand its significance. Ain't that cool how God's always, you know, like you don't realize in the moment. He just thinks he's there tending to the flocks. Now the Lord is there. He's paying attention to this burning bush. And he's at the place where he's going to continue to encounter God later. And a covenant's going to be formed. And he's going to be there with a nation. And God's story is not done with the nation of Israel. Now, as we get to this encounter, it's interesting because we first read what? That there's an angel in the bush. The angel of the Lord, verse 2, appeared to him in a flame of fire. But then in verse 4, who speaks? The Lord speaks. So verse 2, there's an angel in the bush revealing himself to Moses. Moses looks at it. And when the Lord sees that he looked at it, the Lord speaks out of the bush. Well, this is, if, you've read our, if you're in our Old Testament reading plan with us right now, because we're in the Old Testament for the bulk of the year, if you're reading with us, you've probably seen this a couple of times, where there's these odd encounters that people have with uh, something divine, and maybe they're not even sure what's going on, but then the language changes as the encounter goes on, and we're no longer really talking about an angel, now, now the angel's been replaced with the Lord. So, for example, Genesis 16 this is what happens with, um, with Hagar. So remember, Abram is given a promise. He's afraid it's not going to happen. Sarah says, take my maidservant, have a child with her. That child will be the one that the Lord fulfills his promise through because it's not happening here. Well, Hagar flees. Remember that? She flees and runs from because she's afraid she's going to be, there's going to be retribution for having a child. So she runs out. Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, or Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said, I will surely, interesting, right? I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So there's, there's a promise being given by an angel with the pronoun, I am going to do this. But angels don't give promises like that. Angels aren't, they don't, they, don't, they don't declare what's going to, to happen. They speak for the Lord. They represent the Lord, but, 
But the angel doesn't, you know, it doesn't go eye. So there, right? you read that and you go, that's peculiar. How come there's an angel there and then there's an eye? There's a promise being given as if it's the angel giving the promise. But we don't look for angels for promises because we have the Lord. We'll see a similar one, just Genesis 18. Look at this, Genesis 18.1. The Lord appeared to him, this is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Well, what does verse 1 say? The Lord appeared and then verse 2 says, he looked up and three men were standing in front of him and when he saw them, he ran to the tent and he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass your servant. So you'll have a few of these interactions in the Old Testament where an angel shows up and then there's this kind of language of, well, the Lord is there and the Lord is speaking, but the angel's speaking and are we just swapping language out? Well, church history would look at these moments as pre-incarnate manifestations of the Son of God. Now remember, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's John chapter 1. And so... If the Son of God is always where the Word is spoken, right, that when you hear the Lord speaking, you're hearing the Son, because God's unchanging, God was always Trinity, then when, some would say, when there are these moments, when there's a spoken manifestation of the Lord, that it's actually the Son who is speaking. It's not the incarnate Word, Jesus, because that's a specific time in history that that happens, but it is the manifestation of that second person of the Trinity. That God is always speaking, but that speaking has always been through his Son, because the Son is always the Word. He didn't become the Word, right? Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and so the Son was always speaking. Now, we do, as believers, because we are Christians, we are Christ followers, we look and we will look at what God has revealed in the New Testament, and that is going to give us some of our understanding of how we read the Old Testament. That we don't read the Old Testament just isolated from what God has continued to reveal, is that we have more revelation of God, and we go, okay, well, then that's what's going on here. It's going to be important as God reveals himself coming up, right? We're going to see how God gives himself a name and then Jesus takes a moment, and he uses the same name, right? And it's gonna, he's going to actually make the link again between how God revealed himself to Moses and what Jesus says about who he is and where he was at a specific time in history. So I would say it is the Lord who is showing up to Moses at 80 while he's going about his business. It is the Lord who draws him, and it's the Lord whose mere presence is holy. And it is the son who is speaking. That's how I would take that. Moses takes his sandals off as a sign of reverence because God is holy. Now, the place they are isn't holy because it's the place where they are. The place where they are is holy because it is the place where God is. There's the difference. It's not like, oh, we're at the mountain. The mountain's important. No, the mountain's important because God's at the mountain. That's why it matters. Right? So we need to tend to God's character, his nature, his presence, and we do need to recognize his holiness and the respect with which we speak him. Now, I'm not always the one, but I wouldn't hate on you if you were this. You might have people at your church who are like, don't run in church. Well, have you ever seen this place before service starts? That ain't happening. <clears throat> or after, right? With the amount of children that are just like, Brrr! 
horror. It was like, don't touch the drums, right? It's like, what we yell? It's like our ark. Don't touch the drums. But some would say, you, you, you can't run or you can't do this because this is God's house. They would say something like that. And, and, I, and I honestly, if somebody has that conviction, it doesn't bother me. Because they're, they're associating a specific thing we do here as important in giving it attention. If somebody wants to dress up on a Sunday because that's a way that they can, they can, they can recognize the moment and what they're doing, that's not going to bother me at all. I'm not going, well, you don't really know salvation then. That shouldn't matter. I'm like, no, that's fine. Get it. Go after it. You know, show respect. Show reverence. All of us should be recognizing that God is different. He isn't plain. He isn't our bro. That Jesus is our elder brother. That there is a certain level of respect that we should have when we speak about him. And when we speak to him. Now we don't have to dress up our language with lots of these and thous and thou arts and all of thines and everything else. Because that's not how you speak. It's not how I speak. It's not how thou art speak. How did I get that right? Um, not how thee speaketh. I don't know. But to recognize who he is as distinct. To give attention to it. Signs of reverence can be showing up. Being prepared, right? I remember the church I grew up in, they would actually get the bulletin. Some of you I know miss the bulletins, um, and I do sometimes too. Uh, but we'd get that, and it would actually say, hey, while you wait for the service, why don't you spend time in prayer for the service, for yourself, for the ministers? Um, and I was like, I remember reading that as a high schooler being, that's actually, that's a pretty good thing to do, right? To take the Five minutes you get here early, good luck for some of us, but the five minutes you get here early, and just go, let's take a moment and let's prepare. Let's recognize that we're going to do something that engages the Lord. That's important. And so the Lord says, if you're about to enter into this conversation, Moses, recognize it as holy, because I'm here. Moses is about to have this encounter with a faithful God, and how does he introduce himself, right? I'm the God of, remember me. He's about to show who he is. The God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We said this last week. He's the God who keeps promises. He's the God who is there. He's the God who is present. He's the God who is real. He's the God who engages. He hasn't changed. And so he can say hundreds of years later, I am still this God. I'm the one who gave this promise to Abraham. I'm the one who then saw this promise continued through Isaac and then through Jacob. I am that God. And so he recognizes, he says, recognize this moment is holy and know who I am. I am the same God your ancestors worshipped. And then we get this commission as we get into verse 7. Now, he says, I, I have surely seen the affliction of, and what does he say? My people. He hasn't forgotten his nation. In fact, this is his promise that he gave to Abraham. I, I've seen the affliction of my people. He hasn't forgotten who they are, even though in Egypt they have not always followed him with faithfulness. They are still his people. 
and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, that statement is thick with significance. What is God doing here? Well, the first thing that he is doing is he is saying, I'm the one that's going to do this. I've seen it. I've heard it, I've recognized it, I'm going to deliver them. So what comes first? Think about this. What comes first, the character of God or the commission of God? What's the character of God? It's the power of God. It's the presence of God. It's it's the promise of God. That's what's coming first. And the Lord, as he's explaining what is about to happen and how Moses will be used in it, he actually leads into all of that by saying, I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to do all of this. It isn't until you get to verse 10 that you see how Moses is going to be used. Then he says, hey, I'm going to send you and you're going to bring these people out. But all before that, he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move them. I'm going to give them this land. I'm going to to get them out and give them the land that I have promised. And this is so important about how we think about our own lives. Every Christian in this room has been given the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We've been been given something by the Lord Jesus, the resurrected, risen Lord Jesus. And he has said to go make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to teach them to observe all that he has commanded and that he will be with us to the end of the age. I will be with you. In Acts 1.8, we get language before his ascension, where he says, you will receive the Holy Spirit, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so both in Matthew 28 and in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus' ascension, what does he say? You have a job to do, but I'm the one doing it. I'm the one giving you the power. I'm the one giving you the Spirit. I'm the one who is with you. So we, we sometimes get so worried about our, our part. But a big part of our part is remembering what he's doing. <laughs> remembering how he's going to work. When you're nervous about sharing your faith with a neighbor or somebody you've met, even at like the checkout aisle, or you just, the Lord provides some unique opportunity, like when you're like, oh, I, I got to say that thing right. I was actually, before service, I was grading a paper, which is a great thing to do on a Sunday. I was grading a paper, and, and the student had written uh, that, that she was nervous as she was sharing the gospel with somebody, because these papers are about spiritual conversations. She was nervous that, that she was going to say the wrong thing, or, you know, spending so much time going, what's my next thing I have to say, or what's the next thing I have to do, or I really hope I say it right, I don't say it wrong, I don't want to be that person. But I'm, what am I about to do? But go preach Exodus 3, so what's my response? But like, don't worry. Don't worry about getting it all right. 
Worry about stepping out in faith and trusting the Lord to do the thing that he's going to do, which is to save people. You don't save people. And so even, even a, a botched gospel presentation can save. Even though you don't think you said all the right verses or said all the right things or addressed all the right concerns, even that can save. Because, I mean, honestly, most of us in this room don't have some salvation experience that only came about once the Lord answered our 75 important questions. We don't have some experience where we go, oh yeah, well, I finally believed after God answered every specific objection that I had. You're always going to have objections. Moses has objections. You're always going to have doubts. You're always going to have concerns. And so it's the Lord who saves And what are we? We're commissioned people to go, but we go in his power, we go in his strength, and in fact, when we get there, we realize that he's been there the whole time. That we're not the first ones going anywhere. (laughs) We're not the first ones going anywhere. God is acting. God is going to deliver, and he's going to use Moses. Now let's take a minute and talk about Pharaoh, because it's a big deal. Depending on how one dates the book of Exodus, I don't mean like go out on a date with, but give specific times and dates to what's going on in Exodus. There's kind of two popular dates um, that would give us two different pharaohs. Uh, Amenhotep II or Ramses II, depending upon if you're like a 15th or I think a 13th century date of the Exodus. Uh, most people, the, the commentaries I read, stuff I would do, and even the school I went to, would largely look at 1446 as the date of the Exodus, but some people go, well, it could be later. Uh, but either way, whichever Pharaoh you're getting here, these guys are winners. <laughs> and they're warriors. And they win in battle. And you don't want to cross them. And so there's Moses, the shepherd, just hanging out west of his father-in-law's land with some flock. And God says, I want you to walk up to Pharaoh and tell him that you're going to let his labor force go, that he's going to do that. I want you to walk up to him and just say that. This is the guy that's going to kill an enemy. And so, of course, what would happen but Moses himself would go, ah, maybe you have somebody else. Maybe, maybe there's another person who's fit for this job because, I mean, maybe if I had to go before a shepherd, I could do that. But to go before a ruler who kills his enemies, who people would venerate as God, maybe that's not the, that's not the one you have for me. And so you look at verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I don't want to go to Pharaoh, and then I'm also not that important of a person, right? So he has that kind of weird humility thing that sometimes we do. But what is his fear based upon? Who he is. His fear is based upon himself. Who am I that I would do this? You ever feel this way? Who who am I, God, that you you would use me here? God, am I any good? I mean, I'm 80. Don't you have somebody who who can walk farther, have more energy, more excited? Who am I to do this? On the other side, you could go, well, I'm too young. Don't you have somebody older, wiser, smarter? Somebody who's had this conversation before? Couldn't you use that? You ever been that person? 
But what does God say? It's not you, it's me. I'm not worried about your insecurities. I'm not worried about what you think you're not good at. Listen to me, verse 12. But I will be with you. I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. There's that Horeb Sinai connection again. I'll be with you, and then you're, but you'll be back here. Well, he then gets nervous again. Who am I? And then he becomes, his next question becomes, who are you? That's what he does next. So who am I that I should do this? And he's like, well, who are you that, that we should respond to you? That, what do I say? Moses said to God, if, if I come to, come the people, to the people and they say to in them, the God of your father sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What do I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Which to me doesn't sound that promising. It just, just from my perspective. Now I'm far removed from this, right? Thousands of years removed. But hey, who sent you? I am did. What does that even mean? So we need to go into this a little bit. Because the wording's important. This is actually the disclosure in a sense of God's name. If you've ever heard the name uh, Yahweh, if you've ever, ever, ever heard that, right? So I am is, is God speaking about himself. Yahweh is the same words, but it's just now what Moses would be saying, it was his he is. So Yahweh is saying he is. So when God says I am, and then Moses retells it, that's where that idea of he is comes from, Yahweh. So that, that's where that language is. But such a declaration still seems odd, right? If you say, I am, or he is, well, how does that help the nation that you're about to go to? How does that help them? But God adds more to the idea, and this helps us. Verse 15, God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Haven't we already heard this? He said to Moses, now he's telling Moses to say it to the people. He has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what in tying himself to the ancestors that I was there, that I was doing that? What is he saying? First, he's saying, I'm the God of your history, Israel. I'm that God. I'm the God that gave those promises. I am that person. I've made a covenant with you. I've remembered. I'm faithful to keep his promise. I was there long before you were there working out my plan. I am. What else is he saying? That God's identity and the fact that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This gets interesting because even though we're writing about events happening in the 1400s B.C., that declaration, revelation of God saying, I am, I am faithful, I am true, I am this God, I, I will promise, I will do what I promise. Well, events happening over a thousand years later, Jesus use, he uses this interaction to explain some of who he is. There'll be one verse on the screen toward the end, but I want you just to set up this thing. Religious leaders are speaking with Jesus and they're trying to figure out some of his story. The Jews answered him, this is John 8, 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Well, Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So Jesus is alluding to the fact that he is beyond temporal. And he goes, well, Abraham died, the prophets died, but we have to keep your word? And we have more significant people in our past than you, buddy. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, I will glorify myself. My glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. It's the son saying he knows the father. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Interesting. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What? I mean, what did he just do but a son of God mic drop? What, what, what does he do? And, and the fact that the response in verse 59 is so vitriolic, they know what he's saying. Verse 59 says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew what Jesus was saying in that moment. He's placing himself in the burning bush by using that language, that self-disclosure language, but also in that he's going, I'm there before the bush. I'm there before Abraham. Before he was, I am. Eternal, existing. I've always been there. And that's why they're ready to kill him. Because he is making a declaration that he is God. He's making a declaration that, yes, you need to listen to my words. Not just because I'm a prophet, but because I am God. So I am, that disclosure is important for us. In that language of he, he is He's unchanging. He's faithful. He's kept his promises and he's keeping his promises. Now, more of the declaration. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. This is Moses saying this. Saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise... This is after he's declared who he is. I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land flowing with milk and honey. God sees. He keeps talking about the ancestors and his promise. He goes, I've seen your affliction. God has observed. But remember, lots of time has passed. 
not just the 80 years that we've spoken of in three chapters, but the hundreds of years prior to that, where the people are growing and multiplying in the land, but now they've been oppressed for decades by Pharaoh. For decades. And what do we see in verse 16? I, I have observed you and what has been done. Now think about where you are for a moment. Can you confidently and, and faithfully, with all your heart, say, God sees me and knows me? That he is concerned about what I'm going through. Because the longer time goes on in, in an ailment or in oppression or in frustration or in pain or in suffering, the longer time goes on, the more tempted we might be to think that God has abandoned us. 80 years is a long time to be oppressed. And yet what does God say to Moses to say to the people, I've observed and I will deliver. I promise that I will bring you out of this. So I do want to say this because it's true. To the one this morning that is going through pain or wondering what tomorrow will bring, he, he sees you. He's not unaware. He's not avoiding you. To the one looking for a job, he knows. To the one who isn't sure that their parents will make it through the year, he sees. The one bullied at school, he sees. And he doesn't just see, but he cares. And he doesn't just care, but he delivers. That he's good and faithful and loving and kind and gracious and generous. He's interested. He sent Jesus, the word, into this world to die for your sins, for our sins. That through him we could have faith that God is a delivering God. And that the promise of the inheritance that we have together as followers of Jesus changes how we approach this life. And I, and I don't mean this in a, in, a, in, a, in a disparaging way for pain or suffering. But we get, even if that's the case, through faith in Jesus, a little bit of suffering and a lot of eternity. You even hear this language in the scriptures, though you suffer for a little while. A little bit of suffering and perfection forever. Right? So our, our end game is not how can I make my life here better, but how can I better know God so that I understand what's happening right now and not get so caught up in this moment, not get so concerned about how I'm feeling or what I'm going through. Bad boss, you go, why did God give you a bad boss? What might God teach you through that? What might, what might obedience look like in that environment? God continues his promise in verse 18. They, the elders of Israel, they'll listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go before the king of Egypt and say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days journey in the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. Now, I want to stop there and just say this. He's revealing himself to, to Moses and to the people of Israel as the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he's speaking to Pharaoh, what does he say? The God of the Hebrews. Almost like, well, what, what, Pharaoh doesn't know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. So they need to know it's, it's me, your God, that's going to do this. Because that language doesn't, doesn't hit the same way with a non-Hebrew. So to Pharaoh, they're going, <clears throat> the God of the Hebrews is doing this. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So he's foreshadowing the plagues. That's good. We're going to get that again in chapter 4. But there's foreshadowing of what's going to come. That he must be compelled and sent. He will send you out. He's not going to let you go. Because he's going to try and handle what's going on here. Or in Egypt. I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for your clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So he's saying, not only are you going to go out, but you're going to go out with their stuff. As you go, people are going to be going, please take this. You just, you know, like, what do I have to do to get you out of here? Do you need my jewelry? You can have my jewelry. You need money? You can have my money. I, am, I need you gone. You ever gotten to that point? That's what's happening here. So what we have here is that we get set up for what's going to happen. There will be a confrontation between the Lord, Yahweh, he is, I am, right? And Pharaoh, the anti-God. The worldly God. We're going to see this confrontation between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, and this powerful ruler. It's not between Moses and Pharaoh. The battle's not there. The battle's between a God of this world and the God that's been forever. That's the battle that we'll see as the chapters continue all the way through the Red Sea, we see this plundering, the plagues, all of that is getting to God being faithful to his word. How does it happen? What happens through people who are obedient to do what God has said. It happens through a man who hears the voice of God and looks upon it. It happens to a nation who believes God will keep his promise. And it's all part of that trajectory we spoke of last week. A part of the Lord securing redemption that unfolds in multiple phases but ends right where God intends. I'm talking about truly ending. New heaven, new earth, freed people worshiping Jesus who are secure in him. What we're reading here is still moving us there. That this is a stop on the way of God redeeming and fulfilling the promises that he has made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. That we're still going. So I want to ask you a few questions. First is, do you know the Lord? Do you know that he cares for you? Do you know that he hears you? Do you know that he's heard you? If not, I want to ask you this. Do you know that he saves? If not, I would urge you to consider Jesus. 
your Savior, in whom you must believe for faith. The appearance of God in a burning bush, all all the things that we're reading even now are all getting us to this spot where we see Jesus. And then this question for the believer in the room. What changes in how you spend Monday, tomorrow, when you realize God is fully capable and powerful and longs to save people? What changes tomorrow if you wake up and you are absolutely confident in the good, gracious, saving nature of your God? And you understood with that beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is with you until the end of the age. What changes about Monday morning? It might be a small, forgettable moment. But then when the Lord provides that moment to speak of him, to declare him, to talk about him, It leads to big ones. And God is there in all of them because he is. He is that God. He is the faithful one. So let's remember him in that and in prayer now.